Houston, Houston Annapolis Center, do you have any test operations restricted area 2508? Area 31, Roger. Traffic is quite luminous and is exhibiting some non-ballistic motion, over. Roger, Aries 31. Continue to send it to your discretion, over. Okay, Center. The traffic is approaching head-on, ultra right, and really moving. They're right by us, right now. There are a thousand UFO sightings reported around the world every month. 90% of these sightings can be explained, but 10% cannot. Officially and unofficially, the U.S. military has been investigating UFOs since 1947. Their top secret goal is to find out what's behind these unexplained sightings. The Pentagon classifies them as unusual airborne anomalies, but a better term is X-Files. Join us now as Mac Wanwan and Commander Cobra explore these unsolved cases, UFO incidents that baffle even the U.S. military. This is Mac Maloney's Military X-Files. And now, here's Mac Maloney. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to Mac Maloney's Military X-Files show here on the Distant Thunder Radio Network. And this is Mac Maloney. What a show we have for you tonight. But let me first introduce you to the members of the posse. Girls, it's that time. Sit yourselves down. Get your fans going. Get your misters ready. Get that big box of Kleenex and that extra big box of wipes because the very, very, very famous, I can highly say it, Wanny, <laughs> the very, very famous Juan Juan is here. Hello, Mac. Hello, girls, especially. Welcome to the show tonight. It's going to be a great one. Mac, it's good to be here as always. Pleasure to see you, hear you, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, good to be anywhere. share this. Good to be anywhere, as my man yes. Keith Richards always says. Yes. 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 Um, speaking of being nowhere, uh, sorry, middle aged ladies, Coco is still on a secret mission. He might be joining us later on in flight, as he might say. What? Well, your grandmas might be uh, happy to know that our national correspondent Switchblade Steve Ward is here, switching <laughs> up in Battle Creek, Michigan. Well, you know, I, I am dynamite with the over 80 crowd. Uh, great to be here, Matt. Thanks. Good for you. And how are you? I, I'm beyond wonderful. Hmm. Okay. Super duper. Good to be consistent. Um, okay. Let's uh, let's go to the beauty among the beasts. Joining us up from up in upstate New York somewhere. Our favorite good witch, Raven. Raven, how are you tonight? Hello, my friends. I'm doing great. How are you? Well, we'll see. Yeah. Uh, it looks it looks like it's a bun night. Is it a bun night? It's a bun night. It's like 95,000 degrees here, and <laughs> everything is humid and giant, and I, I don't know what to do. Okay. All right. Well, I hear you. A bun to the rescue. I've been sleeping in the nude the last couple of nights, so... Okay, enough. That. That's enough. Where's my thing? Where's my rim shine? You know, mark mark the, the, the minute they're going to edit that part. I think. Yeah, really. Let me, let me mark the tape. Uh, okay. Let's move uh, further up the totem pole. Joining us is our security chief, the guy who's looking in on us all the time, even though we don't always see him, Willie Club in beautiful Methuen, Mass. Hey, Mac. Hi, folks. Great to be here. Hey, I, Club. I, you've never said that before, moving up the totem pole. I didn't no. know what else to say. No, I didn't I, want to say I'm, moving down. I, no, I took that as a positive, Mac. I really appreciate okay. it. Yeah, it looks like a good night tonight. I, f- I feel good about it. Okay. All right. Everything good with you? You look yeah, fit? Wonderful. He, yeah, he wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful. He always looks fit. He looks amazing. Oh, wow. Methuen? Okay. Lawrence Gunn. Did Methuen, you say Mac, Meth- yep. Meth- Methuen? It sounds like some kind of a adult... Uh, a, a drug or something like that. Some kind What's of, that? Uh, I mean, Methuen. Methuen, like Prozac. You don't know your you, know you don't know your Indian tribes. That's uh, the Methuen tribe. 
No, I, I guess not. I, well, we have a lot of them yeah. here in the uh, in this uh, part of the country. So, ah, just to let you so know. I just insulted all the Native Americans. My apologies. Probably. That's so okay. I wouldn't go out for a couple of days. Okay. <laughs> so I, don't go to Lawrence. I'm, I'm going to head west of the Mississippi, I think. <laughs> don't go to Lawrence or Methuen. You'll be okay. That's where most of, most of those Methuen Indians hang out in Lawrence. Anyway, someone who may know where Lawrence is because he's in Massachusetts. Right next to, right next to Haverhill. In the south shore of Boston, where all the rich people live, Oh man, Jim Hamilton down in Marshfield, Mass. Jim, how you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Good to uh -huh. see you, Jim. The Irish Riviera? Yeah, loving it. It's uh, it's good beach weather, but not good for much else. Yeah, right. Have you been then to the beach? Is Duxbury Beach open yet? Uh, you mean because of the plovers? Yeah. Right. Uh, we, we usually <laughs> go to Green Harbor Beach and, and walk down towards Duxbury Beach. So Right. If you're talking yeah. about the rich side of the South Shore, it's Duxbury, not exactly Marshfield. Okay, all right. So they keep an well, eye on the plovers there too, yeah, huh? People, <laughs> yeah, I've heard I've heard jokes about people stop in Marshfield, do something before they go to Duxbury. It has to do with men's and ladies' rooms, but we won't get into that. Wow. Okay. I used to go to the Rexicana Ballroom. Oh yeah, yeah, the Rexicana. Boy, that's that's going back a ways. Yeah, a couple of years. <laughs> that's when Frank Sinatra <laughs> was highlighting it. All right. So, uh, okay, uh, so we're going to uh, have an interesting show tonight. Um, Jim is someone who can uh, give us, uh, you know, uh, information on maybe how to survive an airplane crash, uh, which would be useful information if you happen to be in the middle of an airplane crash. Um, but he's also an expert on, you know, how people have survived airplane crashes and survived air disasters. So we're going to be talking to him about that. Uh, well, well, there's a crack of thunder here. This should be interesting. And also, um, coming up in a little while, we'll be talking to Tom Reed, who is someone who is uh, really on top of an incident uh, that people know uh, as the Berkshires UFO, which is in the western part of Massachusetts. Uh, a lot of strange activity out there to the point where there's actually a monument uh, at a park out there where lots of people saw this certain UFO. And uh, he's uh, he's been on a lot of TV shows, radio shows, and everything. This is his first Visit with us, so that should be good. Tom Reed will be joining us later on in the show. So, what's interesting is that we have no bits tonight, Raven. We have no top ten. We have nothing funny to talk about. I mean, I have doing? I have a segment. It's you not do? Like what a, is it's, it? Well, so I'm redoing my house, and I found because I was a freaky little kid, yes. my my pop up mummy book. And I saw this and I'm like, I forgot what a strange child I was. And Don't remind us. the best book ever. And I, I have several books on mummies that I used to bring in to class. And I was asked mm -hmm. to not bring them in because I scared the other children. Losers. Really? Yeah. Am I right? Yeah, I'll say. Who wouldn't want to know about mummies? Mummies right? are cool. Let me ask you. So you're a mummy expert. Let me ask you, let me ask you, what, what have they ever discovered? Because I've always heard that the solution, when they would wrap the mummy and they would put some kind of solution all over the, um, the bandages to preserve them. Have they ever figured out what that was? Because um, I think there's theories, but I, I don't think it's like ever officially been like figured uh -huh. out. Um, I'd have to go back and do some research. I'm no expert. I'm a, I'm an enthusiast on Mm -hmm. People that have passed away and were wrapped in paper towels. So I have a question for oh, Raven. 
Go ahead. Uh, Raven, did the other were the other children aware that mummies don't actually come to life? Oh, I doubt it. They, okay. I mean, huh. come on. They were afraid of them. They probably thought like they watched one episode of Scooby Doo and they were like, "Oh my god!" And it's like, Abbott and Costello was chased by a mummy too. Yes. <laughs> Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. I think at every monster movie, uh, every monster they, they from did, all yeah, those. They, they they took advantage of every universal monster, horror universal, movie monster, right, yeah. and, and yeah. milked it to death. Yeah, that was funny. <laughs> so yeah, hey, listen, that's my little bit. I had to bring it up. <laughs> Coming in hot, it looks like Kamina Cobra is joining us. Coco, are you there? I am. Good evening. Sorry about that. Ah. I was waiting to uh, join you. Uh, I do like to add uh, one small remark about the mummy concoction, a uh, paranormal event that I experienced a number of years back in the uh, cemetery on the Malden Melrose line of the great state and commonwealth of Massachusetts. Okay. Centers on a doctor slash and bomber undertaker who uh, experimented in trying to find out what it was that they had done with the embalming techniques mm -hmm. of the Egyptians never been truly uh, formed there's a number of uh, of uh, schools of thought along the way about what that uh, what that technique was pretty gross when you talk about the uh, taking out the brains uh, through yeah. the nose yep. to uh, prepare yeah. the body and the other organs that were put into uh, containers Mm -hmm. uh, for the preservation, of course, and, and, and the Egyptians being Egyptians, you know, leaving money as well as uh, other important things to have for the afterlife. Uh, I was hoping mm -hmm. that you could just go, you know, all debit card uh, when you <laughs> checked into the next part, but I guess not. Oh. You know, gold is still king, uh, both sides of the gold line, I guess. Yeah, very Great to see you all. That I mean, sorry that I was a little bit late. Like I said, uh, I was being okay. blocked in the green room. Oh, royalty always it on arrives me. late, doesn't Blame it? Blame it on me. There you go. I might have been asleep at a switch. Um, I, I apologize. The uh, the pyramids themselves, it's, you know, they really never really figured out what they were about. But it looks like they were, you know, burial grounds. You know, I mean, they were they were like, um, you know, the place where only one person was buried in. You know, the, the pharaoh or the, the top guy. The uh, and, mathematics uh, that is yeah, behind the pyramids. The mathematics right. behind the pyramids is absolutely insane. It's uh, mind-boggling. You find things like pi showing up, the right angles, the uh, it, it, there is, it, and the scale of the size of the pyramids to other things that are happening astronomically as well as geographically on the planet. Crazy stuff, absolutely Very crazy strange. stuff. Yep. And then when you ask, how did they move those stones? Right. You know, that's the other part that you know. How were those stones love it? You know, placed and put into position. Right. Yeah. And thousands and thousands of years ago. I mean the. the one of the Egyptian kingdoms, if we can time it this way, one of the Egyptian kingdoms happened 2,500 years before the birth of Christ. Think of that. When Christ was walking around, the ancient Egyptians had already been around 2,500 years. That's, that's and almost, gone. you know, uh, almost. And, and, and completely gone and changed. You know, and so. gone, yeah. yeah. There's also a UFO connection there, too. You know, there's a lot of belief about the whole mm -hmm. thing with the pyramids and UFOs and. Mm -hmm. Right now, yeah, yeah. It's crazy. So anyway, well, thank you. Uh, so we now we know that Raven is a big mummy fan too, and so, was a creepy kid yeah. in a good was way. A creepy Obviously, I was a creepy kid. <laughs> I always liked that song by Steve Martin, King Tut. Hey, Raven, <laughs> what's on fire? Is that uh, incense that's uh, behind you? No, oh, my room's on fire tonight. Okay, just want to let you know. You know, it, it, you know, the show's hot. And you're, and you're and you're bringing I'm, the heat. So yeah, I'm keeping it. an eye on it. It's a well, it's pretty low yeah. right now. <laughs> she okay. didn't start the fire. 
Listen, now that we're uh, we have a uh, little bit of time here, let's go to the part of our show that people listen to the most. It has to do with Switchy. Switchy, what did you have for breakfast this morning? And I'm hoping it's going to be good. <laughs> Mac, <clears throat> I, I just had the old standard. I had sugar frosted flakes. I, oh, I, I know. Do you I put know. extra sugar I, on your sugar frosted flakes? At least flakes. it wasn't an energy bar. Uh, I mean, count your blessings. Um, I will. I will do my utmost next week to do do something a little a little more interesting, a little more titillating, shall we say, for the breakfast. What, what did he I say? I think we can use that word on the air, but okay. Let me mark the tape. But, but we can't say titillating. Okay. Well, now you said it twice. Uh, okay, it's just that well, it's a little. You seem to be making like a big memory out of the whole discussion That's here. What's right. going on? Listen, well, you know, speaking you know. of Eight Mile Road, they used to have signs about that kind of thing up uh, on the. Um, going down eight miles really about okay. titillation on eight mile road titillating review titillating oh, gotcha. okay. wow okay. that's true well, whatever i, I never like never actually went inside i just I saw the sign hmm. yeah i'll bet okay friend of mine All right, if that's just if that's your story sticking to it then okay so look at why don't we do this why don't we go right to our first guest uh our good friend jim hamilton marshall mass jim thanks again for joining us my pleasure uh, you were on a segment uh, earlier that has yet to air. We're still trying to figure out all the technical problems uh, that were involved. Uh, things started to go wrong when we had uh, Raven's father on as a surprise visit. And then after that, the electronics went all screwy. And we got it uh, We got it at Apple trying to decipher it. So at some point, that was one. But anyway, in that segment, we talked about you have written extensively on people who have survived Air disasters. Is that putting it right? Well, particularly long falls related to them. So people who have fallen tens of thousands of feet uh, and survive without uh, a working parachute. Most folks have heard about Vesna Vulovic, you know, a stewardess who was in an airplane that blew up at great height and fell. Uh, Guinness Book of World Records length and survived. Uh, other folks like that. And a lot of these folks tend to be sole survivors of aircraft, which is our topic tonight. So mm -hmm. there's a bit of overlap there because some people just survive a plane crash when it hits the ground, but some right. of these planes blew up in midair and somehow someone miraculously survived a long, long fall because they came down in wreckage or landed in a swamp or came through trees or some other factor helped break their fall a little bit and they survived. Right. Uh, just remind us of that one incident we talked about earlier where there were two airmen on an airplane that was shot down in World War II. One had a parachute, one didn't, and they ran into each other in midair, right? Exactly. One was the pilot, and he gave the, the bailout command. One of his gunners jumped out, uh, and the plane blew up before he had a chance to put on his parachute and jump out himself. So he found himself flying through midair and actually latched on to the other airman in midair, grabbed onto his legs. And you know, the thing about those kinds of incidents, there are a number of times when somebody's in a burning plane, there's one parachute and the two guys decide to come down together and one mm -hmm. holds on to the other. Well, typically yeah. when the parachute opens, the person who is not harnessed in falls off and yes. falls to their death and it's tragic some odd combination of factors. I think the fact maybe that the parachute was just beginning to open, the guy was swinging in the right direction and he came in and grabbed onto his legs and you know, he was holding on for dear life for like yeah. three or four minutes while they're coming down under that parachute. Um, wow. the, 
the guy who he grabbed onto, I think, had a broken leg. So it was even kind of tough for the guy who was being held onto. But right, luckily, right. the pilot um, who hit the ground first kind of broke the fall for all of them. And so both mm-hmm. of them survived. I mean, totally amazing incident. What are the what's the luck? I mean, what is the I mean, the chances are astronomical. But what luck that you run into someone in midair and you share a parachute successfully all the way down. It's 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 just I mean, it's just. Well, you know, you think about it. If you have an, you know, a, a world war, and there are airmen, and tens of thousands of them are blown up in midair and come down, uh, to me, it seems like some percentage of them, let's say it's 0.05, are going to have something miraculous happen. They're going to mm-hmm. find somebody in midair. They're going to come down through trees and land in snow on bushes and survive. They're going to hit the skylight of a train station and somehow bounce off angles doctor finds them immediately and they survive you know it's it's just amazing and then you know there are plenty of other incidents that happen outside of wartime too um but really world war ii was the test case for these kinds of things yeah i'll bet i'll bet so all right let's talk about how to survive a crash is that what we're going to talk about kind of well i can give you three suggestions if you like um i'm not sure it's going to be they'll be entirely helpful for your listening audience but number one is if you look at the list of all of these sole survivor incidents, the absolute youngest was 14 months old and the oldest was 52. So it's, it certainly pays to be young. Okay. Now, that's not exactly a choice you can make uh, if you're climbing onto an airplane. And I don't think there's anything that I can tell you about, you know, like sit in this section of the airplane or, mm-hmm. or you know, go to the back or pay attention to this or that. Because, you know, these sole survivors, I haven't seen a pattern that would tell me, you know, you should always be there or not. Right. Um, right. But number one piece of advice would be don't be any older than 52. Okay. No, I'll keep two. that in mind. Well, that leaves everyone with a raven on. <laughs> the raven, you are you are all set here. Uh, we're all sunk. Um, number two <laughs> no. here. She just turned oh. twenty one just the other day, so she. I just I just turned twenty one, literally. Right. So you're good to go for a long time. Yeah. Hey Jim, do you know? Does that have anything to do with older people having heart attacks or something coming down? Do they? Uh, you know, people people wonder if that's the case. You know, uh, people have asked me if someone was falling in midair without a parachute, would they have a heart attack? And I'd say probably not. I mean, skydivers fall in midair. They know they have a parachute, but they're falling in midair and it's not the falling that makes them have a heart attack. Um, so I, I don't really think that's it. I, I think there is a lot to say about, you know, resiliency and youth and vitality and those things tend to uh be a little less in evidence as you get older. So sorry, sorry for that, that bummer, but that's kind of it. Um, The other thing that I would add here is that before you climb onto an airplane, uh, you should definitely pay attention to who the airline is and what their safety record. Um, As far So as far as soul survivors, yeah, we'll, we'll get back to uh, Kwanzaa and, uh, you know, the movie references, but um, as far as soul survivors go, there is one airline that has had three crashes, three crashes and sole survivors in each one of them. And that wow. is Lanza, which is a South American airline, which uh, God bless us all. I do not believe exists anymore. Yeah, I'm but, pretty sure it's done. 
that's that's a pretty poor uh, flight record. I mean, just to have three crashes, but the fact that there's sole survivors from three of their crashes, honestly, I don't know how many other crashes they had. Um, the the joke in Spanish was that Lanza lands on its belly, and that uh, <laughs> oh. that line um, rhymes in Spanish if you uh, if if you uh, say it that way. But yeah, avoid Lanza, and Lanza, in fact was responsible for the story of Juliana Kupke. And if you maybe saw the movie or the documentary by Werner Herzog, she is the one who was in a, you know, an airliner on a Christmas Eve, 1971, I think it was, that was struck by lightning and broke up in midair. Uh, the contents of the plane fell into the Peruvian rainforest. She survived. And that was really just the beginning of her ordeal. She walked out of the rainforest to safety. She had been told by her father that, um, you know, if you ever get into this trouble, she was very experienced with the jungle, in fact, because her father and mother were both, I believe, uh, ornithologists. But um, he had told her, if you get in a situation like this, find a little brook, follow it to a stream, it's going to lead to a river, Mm -hmm. and a river is going to lead to uh, civilization. And that's what she did. It took her like 10 or 11 days to walk out. Um, But she was the sole survivor, and Lanza was her airline. Her father had warned her not to get onto a Lanza aircraft, but her mother and she had uh, bought tickets anyway because it was the only way they were going to be able to get home for Christmas. Wow, man, oh, man. So follow a stream that will turn into a river. And the river will lead you eventually to civilization. Yeah. And I think that's good advice for us all. Although, you know, again, if you're going to get dropped out of an airplane and be the sole survivor, hopefully someone's going to be there to find you quickly. Yeah, right, right. Well, that's interesting. Do you uh, think someone the odds show me? Great, Barry. Yeah, I just another thing. Do you think the odds are better, say you're over the ocean and rather than landing on a hard ground, if you're you fall out and you're, you know, you're in the ocean, you know, maybe a thousand, a hundred, hundred miles deep or something. Do you know on some of these people that survived, were they related to, you know, ocean crashes or anything like that? You know, water is not necessarily a good thing to fall into. Uh, I found a lot of accounts and only very few where water has been a contributing factor. And part of the problem is that you hit the water, you may well be knocked unconscious. And if that's the case, unless you're wearing a life jacket, you're, you're going to drown. And the great drown, quote yeah. that I heard at one point from someone was that um, water is basically, you know, landing on water is basically like landing on concrete, except concrete won't then open up and swallow you. Mm. There you go. Yeah. Take your pick, right? Wow. So, so, but we talked about earlier too, is that you said sometimes people actually hit like the side of a mountain, a snowy mountain and have survived, right? Going down like almost like a ski slope or something. Yeah, sliding sliding down a slope like that, I think that helped Vesna Vulovic, although she wasn't, uh, she was inside the center portion of the fuselage, and that hit on a slope and slid down. Um, you know, there's there this guy, Nicholas Alchemide, he fell into trees and bushes and snow, and that all helped. Um, there's a Russian guy from World War II who was probably the best example of sliding into a hillside. He had, uh, you know, Germans had been uh, attacking his plane, shot him down. He uh, parachuted out. We had a parachute, but he didn't pull it because he was worried that if he was hanging there in midair, the Germans would come by and shoot him. He passed out, never got a chance to pull his ripcord and woke up, you know, rolling down a snowy hill, basically. 
So that that can help. Water is not, uh, you know, mud, freshly plowed fields, haystacks, trees. Those are all good things. Water mm -hmm. in general, if it's, uh, you know, is, is not a good thing. You know, if, if you if you have a failed parachute above you, um, that tends to orient you in the direction with your feet down. And then if yeah. you go into water, it's a little bit more survivable. That means you have, still have to have a failed parachute above you. And there have been examples of that, uh, particularly U.S. Navy guys who uh, were in situations like that where their parachutes right. failed and they went into one water and managed to survive. But again, um, that's the exception rather than the rule. How about, how about if you hit a pillow factory? You know, you know what you could actually a cardboard box factory might be a good thing because yeah. there is a really nice video of a guy who's a wingsuit guy. So there are fake wingsuit videos where you see this guy coming down and he lands on a lake and he survives. It's, you know, it's, it's fake. You, you, you know, when you're on a wingsuit, you need a parachute to land. But one guy decided that, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to set up this, essentially this mountain of cardboard boxes. I'm going to jump out of a helicopter and I'm going to do really kind of a swan dive into these cardboard boxes. And he did that and survived. So wow. um, Pillow Factory would probably work, but he had a choice of what to, to stack up there. And right. he chose cardboard boxes because he just felt, again, it would collapse and collapse and collapse and collapse. And ultimately, <laughs> it would uh, not be a fatal uh connection with the ground right. so when you see those wing guys those uh, wingsuit guys that i see videos of them i can't believe it. they're jumping off the alps and all that stuff lots of maneuverability on the way down but you always have to have a parachute you're not going to land like superman no, no, no. I mean, yeah, if, if you could manage to, uh, I don't know, do the old Superman swoop up and land on your feet, that'd be nice. Right. But uh, gravity and, uh, you know, forward motion and stuff like that don't quite work that way. It brings up this question. We've talked about it on the show before. On the old Superman series, Switcher, you would know this. So you'd see Superman flying, okay? But he'd always come into the room feet first, right? Come into the room feet first. What kind of maneuver does Superman have to do when he's speeding along headfirst and he's got to stop? And you know what I mean? It seems aerodynamically impossible. Talk I don't want to right. step over a switch, but it's a half Lumshavak. <laughs> Thank you. I want to hear more okay. about that. What's a half Lumshavak? It's a maneuver where you uh, alternate the nose and the tail of the aircraft. In the case of Superman, as we come up to the window, much like a common housefly, when it, if you ever watch a common housefly, when it goes up to the ceiling, it's going to park on the ceiling, it'll go up, it'll execute a half a loop and a half a roll, and then fly into the ceiling and then attach itself to the ceiling. Similar thing that the uh, I've actually observed that, that Superman that was, uh, is doing because he has to work through these, yeah. you know, perform that stall maneuver, but he's not actually generating lift. He's using an anti gravity because he comes from place where uh, there's not kryptonite here that allows them to have those powers to defy gravity. <laughs> right, right. Actually, yeah. George Reeves just jumped off a ladder off camera. Is that what he did? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Wow. Thank you, Captain Buzzkill. So glad that you tonight. <laughs> you wow. just revealed my secret identity. Thank you, Cobra. There you go. <laughs> Cobra, question for you as a pilot. Did you, in your training, did they include anything about what Jim talks about, survivability of a Crash yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, there are techniques and things that you learned. Well, I, I have to go to parachute school when I was a cadet, so I, I, I signed up for that because I really wanted to uh, to go to parachute school. So I did that. 
you spend a lot of time learning how to transfer the energy when you make the impact to the ground. It's called a PLF, parachute landing fall. And you practice that over and over and over again. And I can remember one incident where one of the instructors really, really wound up. Uh, it was a very hot afternoon in Georgia and he fell out of the 30 foot tower that we were doing our first practice jumps. You wear a harness and you go out. He didn't have his on, he fell out. He landed, he did a perfect PLF, which they have been drilling us on. On the ground in front of us stood up, yelled airborne, and the rest of us just started doing push-ups because we knew his screw-up meant that we had to do push-ups. <laughs> we're going away, this is unbelievable. This guy didn't get himself hurt. And uh, he was probably right smack in the middle. He was probably in his 30s when he pulled that off, you know, in great shape. Um, going into the water, we spent a lot of time on the uh, naval side of things talking about that. In the old days, they used to talk about these crazy things about when you thought you were about 10 feet over the surface of the water detached from your parachute, because a lot of times if you came down, the parachute would come down on top of you. You can get tangled up in the lines. The parachute will sink and it can be very, uh, very, very uh, frightening as the, as the material gets with water and starts to sink down. So you spent time sure. in a pool where they practice just dropping you in a pool from a few feet above and you had to climb out from underneath the chute, get out of your harness, climb out from underneath your chute. That led to uh, a couple of, uh, very tragic deaths uh, that occurred. Successful parachute uh, uh, exit from the airplane. Coming down the parachute, the latest technique that I was taught, and it's probably changed since then. As you came down to the water, you put your arm across your chest to grab the harness. You detached your harness uh, uh, fitting. Then you detached one of your leg fittings. So all you had to do was do one leg fitting as you entered the water, and you could get away from your chute very quickly. And... Um, mm. We lost a pilot who was very worried about it. wasn't a good swimmer, and he was very worried about it. And what they theorized what he did was is that he undid his chest uh, uh, lat, his, his clip there early and fell forward out of the chute and then right out of the harness because just his legs. And he hit with a helmet head first. But as Jim was saying, um, even with that short distance of about 50 to 75 feet above the water where this occurred, uh, he hit with the force of hitting concrete, and it and yeah. that impact is, killed him even with the helmet on. So yeah, you spend a lot of time talking about water survival, and then depending on where you are, like the Persian Gulf, where I spent a lot of time looking over the side of the boat before flying. Uh, I don't think we would go ten feet without seeing uh, sea serpents, which were highly poisonous. They were everywhere. They're these bright yellow color. They're everywhere. So you survive. You know, the ejection, the bailout, however you got out of the aircraft. Now you get to the water, you successfully get out of the harness, and now you're surrounded by uh, pissed off reptiles uh, that have venom that's really, that, or the sharks show up. So, oh, you know, good yeah. times. Oh, good times all the way around. Yeah, I remember a, uh, I remember a story. There was, a, you know, the band Leonard Skinned. Leonard Skinned, remember them? Oh, yeah. They were, they were in a plane crash, and um, a number of them got killed, but two or three of them survived, and the guy survived that they, I think they crashed in a swamp. To tell you yes, they did. And and he survived, and he crawled to like the nearest place, which was a farm. And the farmer shot him. Okay, so he he thought he was an intruder or something. So he survives a plane crash, only to get shot. But anyway, so so Jim, let's let's talk about um, what we were going to talk about tonight. So we we've 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 said, I guess that I mean the old wives' tale, if I can use that, is if you sit over the wing your chances are better of surviving. And I've also heard if you sit at the back, your chances are better. But that's really not true, right, neither of those? 
Well, I can't say really whether that's true or not, because, you know, maybe in incidents where there were multiple survivors, there were, you know, uh, situations where being in one of those spots made a difference. But honestly, uh, the sole survivor, um, one good place for a survivor what to be was in the lavatory. So there was an incident oh, in a Russian military plane where uh, it collided with another aircraft, uh, came down, and I think it was on approach to landing. So it was not really very high. And the only survivor was someone who was in the lavatory. Um, he crashed, and then he called his wife on a cell phone to say that he was okay. Wow. wow. Okay. All right. Well, so I'm not, I'm not whatever. suggesting people go into the lavatory, but that's a pretty interesting story. And he was a sole survivor. Yeah. And we, we want to make sure that we get the message out clearly that Mac Maloney's military X-Files, Jim Hamilton is not endorsing following uh, the going to lavatory on landing, which is prohibited by the federal regulations in the United States. So if you are uh, in trouble and yelling, yelling out our names will not help you. In fact, will probably hurt you in your defense later on. So uh, just yeah, stay in your chair a crap for that. and keep your uh, your belt low and tight. That's what yeah. I would say. Okay. I do have one more piece of advice, though, um, in another unusual sole survivor uh, kind of incident, which would be to, to keep an eye on what people have in their carry-on luggage. <laughs> so, um, What do you mean, like a bomb or something? Well, it, it, that, that, that could Bob, be. you're a good time. Jesus, Club, you are really, you know, yeah, you're on you? fire tonight. I thought you know, David had the fire, but you're bringing the heat and the smoke. Pillows. Good times with you. Whitey, my goodness. Go ahead, Is that yeah. a bomb in your pocket? Or are you just happy to see me? Uh, okay, listen, that's a stick of dynamite, but okay. Uh, but but here we go. So go ahead. It's in it's in Africa. I think this was the Republic of the Congo, 2010, twin engine plane, 20 people on board, including the pilots. Um, they're coming in to land of you know at the end of their short flight. And someone had brought a crocodile in their carry-on luggage, and it oh, got loose. Right. What? Oh, man. What? Why is that? How do you that? hide that? <laughs> so they were they were just luggage. They, it's they just were. luggage waiting to be turned into luggage. Why are it's you luggage. guys like this? It's How can you be luggage. so judgmental? I mean, I, I'm sure you guys plane. are against taking live poultry in the overhead. Listen to this. Okay, go ahead. Oh, but yeah. if I was to stuff a child in the overhead, yeah, people would say, wrong. oh, that's okay, because <laughs> Mrs. Cobra would say that's okay, too. Well, so, he, so, he can take a nap. So, so any, I ahead. think the guy was smuggling it and intended to sell it when he got to his final location. Uh, unfortunately, what happened was it went after one of the, the flight attendants. The flight attendant ran to the front of the plane. Everybody else on the plane ran to the front of the plane, and the plane became unbalanced and crashed. Whoa. Whoa, wow. Now, they would not have known what happened here, or maybe somebody might have figured it out, uh, except there was a sole survivor who was able to describe the story. Um, And the final thing I would like to say is that um, the alligator actually did survive the crash, um, and it wasn't the alligator who told the story. A human being actually did survive. It wasn't a sole survivor incident. This was two people, two entities survived. Not very long after... Not very long after the crash, the crocodile was killed with machetes. Listen, oh oh, survive the crash, Why? you're a survivor. You can't clear yeah. customs and you have problems with the locals. Right. That's a different situation. Wow. No, you're right. You're absolutely club, right. This is not a club, sole survivor You need to weigh situation. in here, Club. Explain to them that the crocodile survived. It's a tubi. To be. No, I, I just don't understand that. That poor crocodile, they deserve to live after going yeah, through all that. 
Absolutely. Wow, wow yeah. that's great. Imagine talking to the guy, the survivor, and they say, what happened? He says, well, it all started when this crocodile got loose <laughs> on the plane. I don't and think ran. anyone would believe you. They'd be like, Man, no, really... you were you were drinking too much. Like, you need to well, calm down. Obviously, you guys have not flown out of the United States very much. Okay. In yeah. some of the more hallowed yeah. corners of the world. That is not all that uncommon. Yeah, yeah. Really? I know wow. that there was, a, uh, there was a plane once of uh, coming out of the Middle East, and... Um, with some religious pilgrims and someone actually started a campfire in the middle of the aisle to make some ritual tea playing caught on fire and crash. So uh, that's probably not a good idea either. No, I would not recommend that. Let me answer this. So is the, the, it seems like the crew never survives. Is that right? Uh, no, one of those Lansa flights that I told you about, one of those three, it was either the pilot or the co-pilot who survived. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's a tough one when uh, you've been flying an airplane and you're responsible for the deaths of, let's say, 90 to 150 people and you're the one who survives. Yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, is flying in a seaplane uh, a little more less dangerous? If you're in a seaplane and the seaplane's going to crash, you know, it's, it's used to landing on the water. Yeah, a good point. So I don't, I don't know of, of any of these incidents. I do actually know of one other incident where there was a crash into water where there was a sole survivor. And this isn't one that many people have heard about because it was just a flight from, I think it was Fort Lauderdale to um, Guantanamo and oh, actually uh -oh. Jacksonville. So there okay. was an aviation electronics technician on that flight. Uh, right after takeoff, one of the engines caught fire. Uh, the aircraft turned to come back to Jacksonville, uh, didn't make it. The wing came off about, you know, 100, 150 yards from the runway. And this one person who was pulled out of the water holding onto an aviator's bag was the sole survivor. And again, you know, a lot of these stories don't get a, a whole lot of headlines. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, right. the headline, the sad headline in most cases being that most everybody died. Right, sure. Yes, right. But it's still the, uh, it's still a very, very safe way to, fly, uh, to travel. Like, I don't like flying, but I think something like 45,000 airplanes take off and land every day around the, around the world. And, you know, you, you, you don't hear about airplane crashes as much as you used to. You know, so it's, it, to me, it's a little frightening, but it is, it's a safe way to, just an unusual way to travel, right? Oh, I agree. I fly. So, I mean, I have, I have no qualms about that. Um, mm -hmm. But by the same token, I, um, you know, since I track uh, long falls of people who have, you know, survived without a parachute, I am never going to be a skydiver because it would just be the most ironic death ever if the guy who tracked long fall survival, yes. you know, deaths or you no know, long fall survival. You know, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't even get you like a freebie at the, uh, the tandem uh, jump. I, I, you're just you're just spitting, you know, into the eye of the dragon there by uh, exactly. yeah, yeah, that's, anywhere near that's, something like that. That's fate. Uh, yeah. But, but I, I want to ask, you said there was three things and I only had youth seems to be important. Uh, the airline, the record of uh, who you're involved with. I think you could even extend that to the uh, military because certain militaries around the world probably don't have quite as sterling a record as some of the others. What's the third thing? Well, no, the third thing was watch out what's in people's carry-on. Oh, that's right. Excuse me. I, I, I missed that. Yep. You know, uh, they you can have also, alligator luggage, but they can't have crocodiles. Yeah, you should also take a change of underwear. Oh, True. Why? Okay. Good safety tip, Club. <laughs> Thanks. For those that are wearing it, Club says bring a change. Look, if you want to talk about irony, I've told this story before. Um, I don't like to fly, but I've gone to travel to Florida many times on the train uh, to visit Lois's family. 
And um, I like the train. If you have your own little cabin and everything, it's really a nice way just to not be able to do anything for a couple of days. But at one point we were about, um, we were going to the Boca area and um, the train stopped about a half, an, a half hour early, let's say from the station. It's just, you know, stay there, stay there, stay there. Finally talked to someone on the uh, train crew and they said, um, an airplane crashed on the tracks up in front of us. Um, and now they're clearing the wreckage. Oh. And all I can say, you talk about irony. How about, you know, that the is. guy who writes about aviation on a train because he doesn't like to fly, but a plane hits the train and that's the end of it. <laughs> uh, that would be ironic. Mm-hmm. Hey, Raven, do you like flying? Do you like flying, Raven? I will fly if it's absolutely necessary, but I'm a uh-huh. road trip person. Um, you know, and the weird thing is, is that I've always wanted to skydive. I've always been really, really fascinated with that. The no, thing no. for me is once I'm like up in the air, I'm good. It's the overwhelming stress of having to go to the airport and check me my too. bags and they, oh, take your belt off, take your shoes off. What do you have in your coat pocket? And it's like, it's none of your business. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it is, but... It's it's their Look, business now. Declare if you have a crocodile or an alligator and just get in your seat. You know what you I mean? Know, and that's, that's what I'm salty about is because the last time I tried to fly, they said, "Ma'am, you can't bring this baby crocodile." And I was like, "Well, how am I supposed yeah, to?" Yeah. Thank God they didn't check with you. They didn't check the suitcase. You check with the mummy. Thank God they didn't <laughs> yeah. look at that. God, that would have been horrible. So, but, so Jim, when you're when you're flying, do you tell the tell the person next to you what you do? Um, you know, I've, I've, uh, I've told these stories to various folks, uh, honestly on airplanes, I am usually just wishing that there's nobody going to sit down in that middle seat and I can be yeah. by myself. Oh, but Jim, I mean, honest to God, Jim, you have the ultimate sh- shutdown right there. So what do you do? Right. And depending on oh, I, I track air disasters and people, sole survivors primarily that have survived air crashes. I can give you statistics in gory detail. Man, talk about the absolute perfect shutdown. Really? I'm going to move that, my seat now. That, that would do it. You're right. But wow, no, I'm just saying a little prayer that that middle seat's open, which is uh, rarely ever true these days. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I always uh, get stuck you... in the middle because <laughs> I'm tiny yeah, I, and they're I, like, I, there you go. <laughs> I try to get near the window. If I'm on a plane, man, if, I, if, I'm, on a, if I'm on a window and if I kind of look out, I feel a little bit better than if I'm you know, just squeezed in a greyhound with wings, you know. So, so, Jim, how did you get started on this? How did this, how did this become a fascination for you? Uh, actually, I was living on Long Island, and um, I came across a tombstone that said, uh, Robert Post, uh, New York Times reporter, killed in air raid over Germany, February 26, 1943. Um, he was a member of the Writing 69th, which was a group of war correspondents, including Walter Cronkite, Andy Rooney, uh, that trained mm-hmm. to fly with the bombers. And on their first mission, he got uh, shot down in the B-24, 44th Bomb Group. And so I decided, I mean, I looked around, I thought, this is a great story, and I could find nothing written about that. Uh, and so I decided to write a book. I published a book called The writing 69th in 1999. And in the research for that, I came across uh, two stories. Uh, One was Nicholas Alkey made. He was the guy 
uh, you know, was in the tail of a Lancaster, I think, that was on fire and going down. His parachute burned up in the, you know, he turned around in the turret, saw his parachute burning and said, okay, do I want to burn up or would I rather fall to my death? He chose falling. He managed to come down through trees, bushes, snow, survived, had a little whistle around his neck, blew it, and then, you know, lit a cigarette and, and uh, waited for the Germans to capture him because he figured at that point, I'm not going to run away <laughs> Yeah, right. Wow. Uh, but there was so another story, badass. too. I love it. Uh, yeah, that was great. Uh, there was another story like that, a guy named Joe Jones, who was in the tail of a, um, a B-20, uh, I don't know, I guess it was a B-17 tail. B-17. Yeah. Right. Joe Jones was a B-17 guy, uh, hit by uh, any aircraft or German gunfire, split the plane into multiple pieces, but the tail turned out to be relatively uh, airworthy. And so I don't know if it came down like a fallen leaf or whether it flew a little bit, but in any case, he survived. And I saw those two stories and I thought, oh, God, there have got to be more of these. So I created the Freefall mm-hmm. Research page. Mm-hmm. Um, that is at greenharbor.com. And I've been collecting stories ever since, got, you know, more than a 150 or so, some of them from World War II, but some of them recreational skydivers, all sorts of other situations, commercial aircraft. Uh, and that's, that's how I got going on it. Wow, that's amazing. Hey, Switch, I, I, didn't I, you tell us once that your, your wife was, caught, was in a parachute and she was unable to touch the ground or something? <clears throat> the she, she, she went to a parachute school <clears throat> and she went through the training and everything. And then when uh, she went up in the little plane and a bunch of them came, uh, jumped out, she was uh, in a Russian parachute. And for some uh-huh. reason, the air currents were such that she was actually suspended in air for a while. We could look up and wow. see her and we could even yell back and forth. And I told her, I said, Sarah, the ground's down here. And you could hear her laugh. And she had some kind of a, a, a speaker to communicate with the ground. And they told her, oh, don't worry, the... Uh, air pressure will equalize or whatever and eventually you'll come down and she did eventually wow. come down which was a good thing yeah yeah but it was just there's, bizarre yeah. to look wow. up at this parachute just floating in the air there, there's a guy a military pilot who wrote a book called the man who rode the thunder and he uh, ejected from an airplane at you know tens of thousands of feet into a thunderstorm and didn't come down for like i think it was about 45 minutes nice. so in a thunderhead <laughs> rain hail thunder lightning and ended up like 45 miles away from where he had uh, ejected and there are other stories of people who went up because of storm drafts my guess is that your wife was uh, very petite um yep. and that uh it may not have taken too much to uh give her a, versus a, a russian parachute doesn't <laughs> doesn't make you come down very fast right. wow 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 hey, hey jim wow. i want to throw one story into you guys uh Good friend of mine uh, jumped out of an F-16 in Germany in the uh, 80s, and when, as the weather was pretty bad, his uh, his wingman uh, was very concerned and started circling, trying to uh, try to locate him in the weather. And he was absolutely terrified because the chute opened. He separated from the seat. He's coming down the parachute, and he could hear his wingman looking for him in the clouds, oh, no. coming by at you wow. know, 300 knots. And he said twice he pulled his feet up into his chest. He pulled his legs up oh, into his God. chest just to to not have it go by. And he was really worried he was going to get hit. Another thing he was worried about, of course, was the, the chute would collapse. That's always a big deal when you get around anything like that. You can get the chute to collapse, and then it doesn't want to open. And 
uh, ejection seat parachutes are not high performance. They're there to open, provide you some cushion coming down. They don't, they're not designed to, to do a lot of uh, great stuff with them. Not like the, uh, the the shoots you see now that are more rectangular and the, uh, the you know, the special forces team Jews, and they can glide with them. They can go, you know, they'll, they'll right, yeah, long, long, long distance. They actually can make lift under the right conditions. Right. Uh, you know, the other thing too, Jim, I was going to ask before we uh, end the segment is that uh, a little while ago, there was a, um, about a month or two or so, there was an incident where two kind of light planes, I think, collided. And one of them had a parachute on it. The plane itself had a big parachute. And it was, it was like a small plane for sure. And it was it, a Cirrus. It, it was a Cirrus Mac. And it, and it landed safely. You know, I mean, why, I probably asked this question before, why don't all small airplanes have parachutes on Oh, that's a good question. I mean, that technology is relatively recent, um, but actually before that happened, there were incidents where for one reason or another, somebody opens their parachute while they're still in a plane uh, or whatever. Planes have come down under parachutes before, not intentionally like in that, that mm -hmm. situation where it was an emergency and it was actually deployed, but where there was a collision or, you know, someone got tangled in the, the you know, the, the gear or something or on the tail and that's how the plane came down. And wow. it's, I mean, it's amazing, but those, those shoots will support a lot of weight. Hmm. It's mainly weight. Uh, it's the penalty for the weight and the cost, Mac. That's the reason why more don't have that, uh, that capability. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, so Jim, I, in fact, uh, I'm sorry. I was Go just going to say that, that for a while there, when they brought out the, uh, the line of airplanes that features that as a, as a safety feature, people were actually kind of being looked at accused of flying into conditions that they shouldn't have because they knew that they had the parachute and then would pop the parachute uh, when they got themselves into trouble where if you didn't have that equipment, you're a little bit more cautious. You wouldn't get yourself into that danger area. Yeah, right. So, yeah, but that's, uh, that's, right, yeah. that sounds like the same line that was used in World War One, because during World War One was right around the time when effective parachutes were being developed. Right. And the early feel was, let's not give these to pilots because we want them to fly the plane, salvage the plane, and do everything possible to land. Uh, of course, when these pilots started seeing, you know, their folks going down in flames with no hope of surviving uh, and seeing, actually, I think the Germans had some of the, the first effective parachutes first. They were like, uh, I want a parachute. Yeah, right. Who wouldn't, really? So Big difference, mind, though, in, in performance between a man-carried parachute and a parachute system with a ballistic projection system on an airplane. There's a huge chunk of change in money and weight that is the reason that there's such a huge penalty on it. Yeah, makes sense. And Jim, where do people get a hold of you? So my website is uh, greenharbor.com. So Green Harbor, like the Green Harbor area of uh, Marshfield, which is uh, which is where I live. And you can also write me at jim at greenharbor.com. You can find that same email on the website. The website includes multiple sections. So there's a part on the writing, writing 69. There's a part on the free fall research page. There's a part on the Black Cats of Amherst, which is a World War I uh, ambulance unit that my grandfather served in. So all sorts of stuff like that that people can find beyond just the, the falling stuff. Right. And what do you do? Um, this, is a, this is a hobby of yours. What do you do in real life? 
Well, I'm semi-retired now. I was a market researcher for many years uh, around mm-hmm. the printing industry and specifically around digital printing. And that stuff mm-hmm. comes in pretty handy if you want to self-publish yourself because there's sure. all sorts of on-demand print technologies. People can buy my books from a place called lulu.com. So there's a yep. uh, basically a, a bookstore set up for Green Harbor Publications, which is my company. And so the market research around the printing industry kind of meshed nicely with my uh, part-time, you know, uh, free time work in doing uh, self-publishing and, and uh, amateur history. And you'd want to hear from people who have, you know, maybe stories, anecdotes or so on and so forth. Oh, yeah. And I have a questions page, too, which I get all sorts of questions. And some, for example, oh, you know, the most recent question I got, you guys would be interested in this, I think. Somebody asked me, and this wasn't really so much about falling, is whether that the, the idea that if you drop a bullet from a specific height and fire a bullet from a specific height, they'll hit the ground at the same time. Yes. Gus, uh, what is it? Mythbusters actually did that as an episode. But I get questions like that or questions about mm-hmm. like, why do cats survive long falls or how fast was I falling when I fell off the ladder or whatever? All of those right. kinds of things. I've answered 100 questions. And if anybody out there has questions about falling, uh, send them to me at Jim at GreenHarbor.com. I'd be glad to, uh, to answer them if I can. Mm-hmm. And if you have well, a really good news item for Jim, he gets excited right. when you send it to him because every oh, now and then you even come out of cover find something interesting on the spectrum of who fell out of something above the surface of the earth. Even I mean, you guys may have seen this recently. There's a great video of a burning building that they, you know, the firemen were taking a picture of. It, it wasn't really a dangerous situation. I think they were just getting getting the fire uh, out. But there was a cat in like this fourth or fifth story window that leaped out. I mean, did this just amazing dive out, cleared a fence and landed and pretty much got up and ran away. Um, wow. Which I yeah. think kind of yeah. speaks to the amazingness. of. But, you know, I, I love getting uh, tips like that for, for fun mm-hmm. stuff. But there have also been a lot of stories about infants who have been crawling around on the 10th floor of their parents' apartment, managed to push their way through or climb over, and somebody's been paying attention, watching, and caught them. So yes. those kinds of yeah. stories are really moving and amazing because, you know, it was going to be a total disaster. And just because someone ran and caught this child, they survived. So wow, what's the answer man, about the bullet? Crazy. The bullet is basically... Yeah, it's it's I mean, yeah. it, it is there's there's air resistance to deal with. But basically, the answer is yes. It depends on how close you really want to say, you know, milliseconds or whatever. But right, right, yeah. Yes. Right. That's interesting. Well, hey, listen, Jim Hamilton, thanks very much for joining us. Greenhaba.com, right? That's it. OK, if you're interested on, you know, people who have uh, survived airplane crashes, the house and the wise and the why nots. Uh, that's a good place to go. So listen, why don't we take a uh, you, quick Jim. break now, and we'll be right back after this. You're listening to Mac Maloney's Military X-Files show here on the Distant Thunder Radio Network. We'll be right back. Do you know where the world's most secret bases are located? Do you know what spooky action at a distance means? Is there a conspiracy by aliens to prevent us from conquering space? And where is the best place in the United States to see a real UFO? Find the answers to all these questions and more in Mac Maloney's new book, Mac Maloney's Haunted Universe. Visit places you never knew existed. The Phantom Tunnels of Tokyo, the UFO Trail in South America, Ong's Hat, and the very mysterious M-Triangle. 
Matt Maloney's Haunted Universe contains hundreds of reports on ghosts, haunted planes and ships, weird celebrity deaths, mysterious sounds, and a breakdown of every monster in America, state by state. You've heard him talk about it on the radio. Now, get all of Mac's paranormal research in one large volume. Mac Maloney's Haunted Universe, with a forward by the very famous Juan Juan. On sale now in your local bookstore or on Amazon.com. UFOs are found in Renaissance art, on ancient coins, and etched on cave walls. They're even reported in the Bible. But more surprising is when UFOs are seen the most in times of war. Through centuries, thousands of UFO sightings have been made by high-ranking officials, military pilots, and ordinary soldiers. Often, these fantastic appearances occur at the height of great battles. From World War I to D-Day to Korea, Vietnam, and beyond, military investigators are baffled. Why do UFO sightings spike so drastically during wartime? Could it be mistaken aircraft? Or is someone, or something, looking in on us? In UFOs in wartime, what they didn't want you to know, Mac Maloney chronicles centuries of these incredible sightings and tries to solve the puzzle of why so many UFOs are seen while humanity is at war. Read about the scare ships, the ghost planes, and the ghost rockets, alien giants in the jungles of Vietnam, UFOs controlling our ICBM bases, dogfights with flying saucers during the Gulf War, and more. 300 pages of unbelievable stories, along with many startling photographs. That's UFOs in Wartime, What They Didn't Want You to Know, by Mac Maloney. On sale at your local bookstore or on Amazon.com. Macaroni's Military X-Files show here on the Distant Thunder Radio Network. This is Macaroni. Wow, what a show we have for you tonight. Let me quickly introduce the members of the Posse Girls. He's here, the very famous Juan Juan. Hello, Mac. Hello, girls. Glad to be here. Excellent show so far. Very fascinating with Mr. Hamilton. I love the mm-hmm. guy. Yeah. It's amazing. Yep. I mean, if you, uh, if you have a chance to survive a uh, airline crash, you're listening to the right show. Well, I was going to ask um, him, also, you know, you know, when they, when the, the stewardesses announced ahead. that in case of a water landing, the flo- your seat could be a flotation device. Is that oversold? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Is that oversold, Jim? <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I watched Sully a while ago, and, and uh, it was good for those folks to have uh, flotation devices. But, yeah, but uh, their plane didn't plane. sink. I mean, yeah, we'll that, be careful. That They're big sink. They're all exactly. standing on the airplane. Right. It's, it, 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 like a raft. Like a raft. Yeah. They almost had but a even, picnic even, on the airplane so, before they left. If I fallen off that wing, I would want to have a, a flotation device. But outside of <laughs> yeah, that really. situation, I'm not sure it applies a lot. Yeah. That was your, okay. that was your well, uh, typical water landing, right, is the way Sully did it. Yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, yeah, right. They teach that in school. I was watching that on TV. I mean, it was literally, literally live on TV. They said, oh, there's a plane in the Hudson River. And it's like, what? And that whole thing was just, you know, broadcast yeah, the, live uh, the ferry, uh, the, 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 the CCTV at the ferry uh, terminal at the bridge caught it. Caught the mm-hmm. landing. Yeah, amazing. 
So anyway, okay, so Juan Juan is here, and uh, middle-aged ladies, uh, it's time for Joy, because Coco has joined us mid-flight. Coco, how you doing? Great to be here, Mac. Glad to join the formation. Thank you for the stealth arrival and probably a stealth departure tonight. You know, right. it was as always just great to be with everyone. And all right, the, ch the chat room wants to know how's the pick. Well, Zeppelin now has a mud bath that has been set up for the very very hot temperatures. Mrs. Cobra had me uh, get the proper kind of bath. Uh, she hand selected the type of dirt that was going to be used. It was sifted. Really? Water was added. And pictures are available. Oh man, I guess um, on a hot day, he likes to go in, he likes to wallow around, come out dry, scrape it off, and repeat the scrape process. Scrape it off. He's a very happy thing. Wow, I'd be happy too if that's Me what and I had to do. You have the there. same routine. That's crazy. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah, that was Raven we just heard about. So Raven, I'm sorry, I'm gonna have to uh, oh, jump sorry, over uh, switch. switch and 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 and. and in club, but tell us, you, you do a mud bath? Is that what we're talking about? Yes, and that was very rude of me, and I'm really sorry. But, okay. I mean, when you're right, you're right. Zeppelin knows what's hey. up. Yeah, and any image head, that you provide for the rest of the uh, guest hosts and guests is fine, Raven. I think everyone will forgive you for uh, jumping uh, in a line to talk about <laughs> your laugh. mud bathing uh, <laughs> as they're trying to now come up with the proper pictures. Yeah, we got to do a segment but on really, that. How, I think how's the, the mud wrestling going on? You as a daughter, Raven. Uh, it, it, so I'm just going <laughs> to tell you, knock it off okay. and let us continue the show, please. <laughs> yes, hey, sir. Listen. Yes, sir. <laughs> Coco, do I have to drive 72 miles to come up and smack you? Yes or no? If you can do it there, uh, young man, I'll, I'll be waiting for you. Just don't trip over the mud bath, okay? <laughs> oh, that big, uh, that big dog you have. So anyway, okay, so uh, Coco is here. Also up there in the... Uh, uh, the uh, Battle Creek of the Republic, Battle Creek, Michigan, the home of uh, the Flakes, is uh, National Correspondent Switchblade Steve Ward. Switchy. It is great to be here, Mac. Okay. Good All to right. see you, Switch. Were you, were you educated in how and how not to survive a plane crash? Uh, yes. Okay. Don't you get on a plane. I just on don't a get on the planes. I, uh, don't get on the plane is the best way to do it. Which you might be. I, I agree with Raven about all the, the hassles now. The, the last time I was on a plane, I kept going to the thing and kept beeping, and they told me I must have some kind of an implant or something like that. And I just hadn't taken my belt off. I didn't know all oh. the routine. And then, and then yes. I had this bag. They kept putting it through the X-ray machine, and the guy says, "She thinks she sees a knife in there." I think, "What is he talking about?" <laughs> and it turned out it was the bag I, I would take to work, and I had a knife in there. I used it at work. Oh, I didn't think about it. Really? And it was, and yes. it was, it was one that my dad had given me. Not any, not even a big deal. It wasn't worth any money. Little, little sentimentality maybe. But they said, yes. "Well, you can take it back to your car." Well, our car was back in the other parking lot. We would have missed the plane. So I right. would go through all this grief and all this hassle. So flying was an absolute pleasure compared to the BS yeah. you have to put Stuff up on with the ground just to get on there. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, take the train is what I do. So uh, also joining us is uh, our security chief, Willie Club. Willie, how you doing? Mac, thanks. It's uh, great being on board here. Thanks for having me. Um, though I have to get back to uh, Switch because he made a comment about setting off those metal detectors. And, you know, the other thing, Switch, you've got to remember is that 
you know, the uh, the hair piece you have has a netting oh. and has a little metal pieces oh. that they tie into, wow. and that that'll do wow. it. But now, club, look, look at this. Unless look at the, it, it, look, it, it's flawless. It flows into my it real is. hair. It is. That's the problem. A little bit of gray, a little bit of white, but it, it flows seamlessly into the dirty dishwater blonde. So oh, you I think not tell where the rug begins and the real hair. No, right, right. I would say switch. Your hairstyle is catnip for most women. I mean, they just go crazy when they see that. And I just, I, I just think I just think it's Club who who does you know too many U turns under the sheets. There, looking at him on the screen here, he's a little jealous. You know what I mean? You know, I'm I'm impressed. I mean, they, women rub your fingers through your hair, and as long as it doesn't get caught in the netting. But anyways, I, I, I don't want to get like that. I because I, I really uh, I'm jealous. But I did want to say about Jim, you know, I was very happy. A lot of the things Jim said, but now I'm kind of depressed. I've always been more comfortable flying to Europe than domestic because of the ocean effect. But now you've finished that off by saying there's no, no, no safety if you, if you fall out over the ocean. And that, I always thought I could survive it because I, I can swim. Have you seen Titanic? Yes. <laughs> How does that end? How does that end? With a plane crash? I've never, no, I've never heard of that. Yep. I mean, uh, water is wet concrete, I think. Jim said at one point, you know, you're going to hit it. It's going to be just as hard, except it's going to suck you in instead of just splatting you. So. And we're still talking about water, folks. Don't, uh, don't take any kind right. of uh, drift off the course line. Let me introduce. So we uh, we taught we uh, introduced Raven. Raven is with us tonight. Raven, the beauty among the beasts. She's got a bun on tonight, and her room is on fire once again. So everything is uh, copacetic. Uh, Coco is here. Club is here. Jim Hamilton, who we were just talking about, how to survive airplane crashes or people who have survived airplane crashes, joining us. And also, our guest for this segment is uh, Tom Reed. Tom Reed is somebody who is heavily involved in what we know here in Massachusetts as the Berkshire UFO. That's how I know about it. Tom, thanks for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me, guys. Hi. Okay. All right. Speaking of now, Tom, before we get to this, yeah, that's okay. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're in the majority here. So, um, it, first of all, is this what you expected, this show? Oh, no, this is pretty cool. I don't think I've ever spoken to seven people at the same time before you got some serious bandwidth by the way okay well you know we tried yeah, we might bring down the internet if we go too long here right uh, so tom just tell us really quick um elevator pitch what is the berkshire ufo when did it happen who saw it well the berkshire's ufo is just a brand name that unsolved mysteries gave it it's the tom reed ufo incident which is in the roswell museum was was mentioned at the united nations on october 2nd 1992 um, they, uh, I'm not quite sure why, why they branded it the Berkshire's UFO, except that there were an awful lot of witnesses, about 250 that, that saw it that night. But, um, it was interesting too, because they focused an awful lot on Great Barrington and the incident didn't take place in Great Barrington. It took place in the western side of Massachusetts, folks. Western yeah, side yeah. of Massachusetts. Yeah. The incident that made history took place in Sheffield. Now, there were an awful lot of things I'd like to talk about with regard to the Unsolved Mysteries episode, but... To give you an idea, um, the the radio station WSBS Radio that actually broadcasted that night, 1969, is still there to this day, in, in the same building, and the wife of Tom Jay, who broadcast it, still lives in town. So, Interesting. yeah. So when um, you know the 
unsolved and the rest of them, you know, came in to talk about, you know, who was going to participate. Um, right. WSBS played a big part in that. And their letter is also hangs in the Roswell Museum. Right. And, and so with what, that, so with that the, 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 the radio station that night was the one who went on the air. The guy came back from home. He was a ham radio operator, went back okay. to the station and went out on the air asking people to call the station to say, where is this thing? That's okay. why Great Barrington got tied into it. Okay, so let's set the table a little bit. So what, what date was it in 1969? This was September 1st, 1969, about okay. six weeks after the moon landing, which okay. is very interesting also because Sprague Electric was the manufacturing facility that was involved in the space race, yes. along with GE and Command and Pratt, all the rest of them. But yes. they made that goodwill message was made right near our diner. North Adams Mass is a, is like, um, you could ride a bike. Yeah. There. So when that goodwill message went, was placed on the moon by Buzz on July 20th, yep. I believe it was, that was just six weeks prior to the sightings. And okay. so when a lot of people saw the, the sightings of crafts in the spheres, there was the controversy is what made this case so popular because right. I hate to use that word, but that's what happened because of the conflict, because those Sprague and GE and a lot of these other manufacturing facilities employed a lot of the locals. So they were working on a secret space program and all these people are talking yeah. about UFOs and they could lose their job over it thinking that they spoke sure. too openly but about current. it. So, so that particular night, so yeah. that particular night, what happened? I mean, it was night and all of a sudden something yeah. appeared in the sky and lots of people saw it. Ah, yeah. So let me back up one second though. Before 1969, there were multiple sightings. It wasn't just 1969, but 19. On that particular night, because it was a holiday, you had a lot of people outside, you know, barbecuing and that sort of thing. So a lot of people witnessed this as a group and a lot of them didn't even right. know. OK, so we went back to lock up our diner, the, the Village on the Green Diner, which was in the heart of Sheffield. And okay. right after Melanie Korchdorfer probably saw it over Lake Mansfield because the crafts, three of them, there were three of them, not one, followed the water. Okay. So we left and my mother was taking a shortcut through the Sheffield Bridge, a covered bridge, one of the oldest bridges at the time. It was one of the oldest bridges in New England. And when yep. we came out the other side, there was a sphere. And I never said it came out of the water. I don't know where it came from. All I know is that it was right, right from the banks of the Housatonic River. It was probably yep. 60 yards away from us. And as it rose, it kind of paused and fired a couple of rods of light into the water, which formed like a V. So it almost for a moment, as a child, I referenced things from things I, that I was familiar with. It looked like yep. an ice cream cone. Oh, wow, wow. So it fired these lights, they went back yep. up, and then it started to continue down the road or along the road that we were driving on about 15 or 20 miles an hour. It was a dirt road, it's very bumpy. And so it, we lost it behind a line of trees. It didn't put out a lot of light. It was a self-contained, you know, I've tried over and over to come up with the best descriptions of this thing. Look like a cue ball from a pool table with a okay. little light. It was solid like that. It wasn't hollow. It didn't seem to be like a, an orb type of thing. It was a solid ball. And wow. then off to the right, my brother saw a second one, very much like the white sphere that we just saw moments ago. But it was armed, mm -hmm. and it was over mm -hmm. the water as it went around this turn. The Housatonic River is very windy. And so if you look at the white, it, it, with, you know, uh, 
the white and orange, you know, left and right of the car, they were almost equal spaced away from us. And so when we drove further down the road, we widened a little bit where cars would pull over because it was a telephone pole there where trucks used to work on a, the light, the light there or whatever, where the phone wires there. Okay. Pulled off to that little spot and to the left was an opening, a large opening. And that's when we saw what looked like, a, a, you know, I don't want to say a typical craft, but it was round and it, it looked like a turtle shell. The top, yep. I'll never forget this. The top right of it was putting off like a glow to it, almost like the shell itself was emitting a light. It wasn't having like lights, it, the shell right. illuminated. And the center of it, it looked like a snake to me. I mean, it was fat and, and, and the top of it, you know, had the markings I used to originally mention like a turtle shell, but yeah. it had lines in it. But the, the centerpiece was so fat that it made, it was wider than the top and bottom combined. And it mm. just there, it just stayed there. Everything wow. went silent, like we were underwater. And, you know, it was- How old were you? I was, just, were you? I was almost 10. Yeah, okay. All right, so you're not an infant. You're remembering this. You're, you, oh, you're, mother, you're cognitive. Right? My mother was driving. Yeah. My mother was 29. My grandmother mm -hmm. was about 50. My younger brother to my right was like two and a half years younger than me. And I was behind mm -hmm. my mother. And this is where it gets kind of weird. But before I jump into that, I want to point something out. So when we first came by the white sphere in the orange sphere and, and passed them and went down the road and saw this craft, there, these three pieces form a diamond or a pyramid, I should say. Okay, yes, yeah, sure. We were in the middle of these three pieces. And I think that there was some type of a communication going back and forth that we were yep. in the middle of because the way we felt, we got super foggy. Like I said, like being underwater, there was like these little sounds of stones, you know, the tires picking things up. It just seemed way too loud. Yes. Like, like when you're underwater. And then sensory. it was very weird. And we so were you afraid? Were you no, afraid? No, I wasn't. This is the thing. I wasn't afraid at all. Um, you know, I, I think we had seen them before and we had talked about what we had seen before, but nothing like this, nothing, you know, this was very weird. And I think right. there was government involved in it. And I want to explain why here in a minute, but when okay. we sat here looking at this craft, I mean, you know, the, Tom Warner said in the Unsolved Mysteries episode, oh, it was like 50 feet. No, it wasn't. It was like 100 yards. I mean, Jan Green, who used to own the pharmacy in town, you know, my mother used to know her. This thing was huge. And it was like three mm -hmm. stories. It just hung there. It was like a, a brown. It wasn't silver. And I like different shades to it. I don't know mm -hmm. if that was the color of it or the bleed of light coming through it. And I don't really know what color it was, right? All I know is that the colors coming through the shell looked different. And the right side was very vivid, and the left side was kind of hard to see. Mm -hmm. And then next thing I know, um, there was like, a, you know, an, like an eruption of crickets. You know, there was a, a flash in the car. Um, everything just seemed to, to change. And all of a sudden, bang, everything came to life again. It was like whatever happened affected the, the life around us, you know, the crickets, cadets, frogs, everything just erupted. And that was basically the last thing I remember from being in the car. I mean, that's, and then. How we long, had, how long were you, how long did you have it in sight? The craft? All yep. three pieces? Yep. Uh, I would say that when, by the time, we were only going like 15 miles an hour. 
and we had gone maybe a hundred yards or so, and then sat there and watched the craft for probably two or three minutes. So I'm going to wow. say four or five minutes. Wow, but again, man. We weren't really coherent that whole time either because we were like, you know, what's going, you know, my mother talks about it too. Like we've been in, involved in uh, hurricanes, you know, in Florida. We lived in Florida a long time. And there's that weird barometric change of pressure. And, and mm -hmm. so yeah. we're used to that. And that's kind of what it felt like. It felt like all of a sudden uh, this heavy feeling over us and this fog and then it lifted, but it was instantaneous. And right. so, yeah. And uh, right. so listen, so, so um, when you were looking at it, okay, well, first of all, are there any, what's the military bases? Are there any military bases around there? Well, yeah, you, you have, um, well, you've got, you know, the Groton Naval Base. And then you have Westover Air Force Base. Westover. Yeah. Um, Newport, I'm sorry, Newport Naval Base. You got the nuclear power plant, or not sorry, nuclear. It was electric boat over on electric boat, right? Electric boat in Groton, uh, right? General Electric, Pratt and Whitney, Command Aerospace in Windsor, uh, General Electric in Pittsfield, Sikorsky, yep. Sikorsky, um, and uh, Sprague Electric, and I believe. Right. The majority of them were all involved in the space race. They were all working right. on government projects at the time. And they were all around Sheffield, which is one of the highest, I think it's what, 1,800 feet above sea level? It's a pretty, and you've got the, the Nike missile sites, I believe, I'm told, are in the mountains over there. You've got the NORAD okay. towers in Pittsfield and Dalton. I mean, right. so back in the day, it was never a question did you see something? That's one of the advantages yeah, sure. space had over some of the other, you know, more uh, famous cases, if you will, that, right. that there was never a question that something right. would be seen. It was simply a matter of, so when my father took it to the UN and lost his life, they decided to do something with it. Okay, so so how many people saw it? Was it this particular night that so many people saw it? This over particular night you saw it? Over 250. But it wow, was 250 man. from Sheffield. And this was also... Um, you know, uh, mentioned on ancient aliens that the, yep. the witnesses came from as far as Pittsfield because it they could follow it. The craft actually followed the Housatonic River. Interesting, interesting, yeah. So it was Pittsfield, Dalton, Lenox, Stockbridge, Agramont, Great Barrington, Sheffield, and it mm -hmm. all went to Canaan, right? They went all the so way the, to Canaan. These are all places, uh, for our listeners, these are all places places in far western Massachusetts, almost on the border of New York, is what we're talking about. So, um, so yeah, where, where Raven lives. Uh, so, so, I mean, the interesting, and we do hear this a lot, and I'll switch back me up on this, is what we hear a lot is that there are frequently UFO sightings are made around either secret military bases or these military contractors, places that they have, like GE. Sprague was very, very big back then. Um, you know, you name it, you know, I mean, it seems almost a coincidence to think that, you know, you have all this top secret stuff going on and then this thing shows up. No, that's not me. Uh -huh. It's not. Oh, I'm talking to him. Yeah. Oh, hey, Mac, Mac, can I add to that? that yes, you know, that area, the Berkshire Mountains, you know, that's a range of the Appalachian Mountains. And right. for, for years, there's been a lot of uh, UFO activity all along the Appalachians. So right, yeah, yeah. That's, that's another important thing about that area of the Berkshires. You know? And the yeah, Hudson, River Valley, up there. Hudson River Valley. And that's Hudson kind of really, what... Yeah, same thing. Yeah. Yes, that's kind of... Um, can, I, can I mention... Oh, by the way, that picture you were showing, that's not me. 
that was, was another no. mistake online. I don't know where. Really? Where, uh, what, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. There was a, the picture he showed was somebody else from Unsolved Mysteries episode. It wasn't me. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah okay. it was identified as Thomas Reed. Yeah, that's okay. <clears throat> that guy had hair, Tom. So, yeah. so. <laughs> no, I did too. Until five years ago, I miss it dra- terribly. It's like, you know how long it took okay. me to not use so Hey, listen, bald is sexy. Right, Raven? Bald is sexy. Please say yes. Please say yes. I can't in good conscience because of my dad. That's uh, that's a weird. Yeah, no, sorry. Her dad is really bald. Okay. But bald men are adorable. I can say that. There you go, Tom. Okay. You feel better? Listen, let me ask you this, though. Let me ask you this. Let me ask So you've been involved with ancient aliens. You've been involved with these TV shows, correct? Yeah. Okay. All right. First of all, how did they approach you? How did they first approach you about this? Well, it's interesting because I used to own a, uh, one of the largest model management companies in the state of Florida. I mean, I, I was a, uh, I managed Miami Dolphins cheerleaders, um, NFL players. Whoa, 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 what? whoa, whoa, whoa. Time Hold out. Stop you were a model manager? Yeah. I had the largest, I was the founder of the largest model management company in the entire state of Florida. Models as in beauty models? Yeah, I had the five-year package. Oh. Well, that's a whole other show there, my friend. So, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, so, yeah, I had the five-year package campaign for Lust Diapers. I managed the Dolphins Cheerleaders. I worked on CSI Miami for three years. I was <laughs> my sons in Transporter 2 with Jason Statham. I mean, I, I um, we were, yeah, we were Hoover's listed at almost $300,000 a year um, on our, by our second year. Really? So, uh, nice. I, I had a 270-pound tiger in my backyard. Yeah. So this all played a part too. So when I get approached by the historical society to, you know, would you like would like to pay tribute to your late father who lost his life on October second, the same date this incident was mentioned at the United Nations in support of General Assembly thirty three four twenty six with Muhammad Rabadan, who was the president okay. of the Parapsychology Society, they also took an interest in my contacts that I had because when you're shooting a, a movie or something, I wasn't involved in television, but when you're filming in Miami, you you want good looking people in the background, right? You, wow. you know, so they would use my okay. talent. So I met a lot of people in the business. And so um, that helped me get attention to this incident when my father was killed. What happened to your father? Um, well, my father, um, my father was approached by, by, uh, I shouldn't say approached. Our fa- my father was an attorney and a politician. I don't know if you know that or not. He was a, okay, go ahead. he was a mayor. And Kevin Titus, who sealed the governor's citation letters, is a magistrate and a judge in the state of in state of Connecticut, who also played a part in getting these documents in front of my dad and hold that because he was a witness to it back in the day. See, let me back up. All these children who saw this back in 1969, you know, they most of them still live there, and they're either bankers, judges, historians, lawyers. So when my father lost his life on the same date, which I'll get to in a second, all these other people knew that there was only one common denominator here. And so the attorney that mentioned our case at the UN was um, Robert Lutchman, who lived um, in Manchester, Connecticut. His office was on Broad Street. He was also a Democrat and ran in the same circuit my dad did. My dad was backed by Senator Chris Dodd and Governor O'Malley was run for office. I, I helped my father run his campaign. And so Robert Bletchman at the time was very good friends with Stanton Friedman and Linda Morton Howe. 
he was actually the public relations director for MUFON at the time. I didn't know what MUFON was at the time. Okay. And so when he organized this United Nations Symposium with Mohammed Rabadan, once again, he was the president of the Parapsychology Society at the UN. They wanted a case that they could hang their hat on to add some uh, credibility to the Hudson River Valley cases. Sure. As, and the environment um, that uh, I guess Cash and Landerman was one that also had this vi environmental change around her vehicle. So they thought that would be of interest as well. So my father was, really wasn't going to go anywhere else. He was pretty happy with what he was doing. So he didn't have all these aspirations. So he's like, yeah, sure, you can mention it. Just don't go too far with it. And so okay. they mentioned our case in support of Cash and Landerman and the Hudson River Valley and a couple others. And he, the, he, he came back with all these files and gave them to my dad. And so about 14 years later, my father was writing a book about everything that he got back from the UN. And a lot of these papers and things I've seen are a lot more than the disclosure they're telling you now. My father okay. went to work on October 2nd, went in his office, his head hit the desk. He was rushed to Yale New Haven Hospital and gone. And he was perfect, wow. healthy, and only 54 years old. Oh my God. And so Jesus. the CDC came in, they were brought in. The mayor of Bridgeport, Connecticut was a good friend of my dad's along with, uh, you know, the Milano family and, um, you know, a few others. Okay. So Go they, so they um, Genovese, Mary Genovese was a good friend of the family. Um, okay. Here we and, go. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's all coming together now, uh, Mac. Show there, my brother. But go ahead. Alicia <laughs> wow. Genovese was a good friend of mine. But anyway, Robert Gambino. Okay. Anyway, so my father, the Brit, the Mayor Bridgeport, um, looked into my father's passing and called in uh, a CD, the CDC, and they shut down the building my my dad lost his life in immediately. Then wow. they then they somehow my mother ended up getting twenty five thousand dollars not to say anything. And, um, and then they, um, he had this huge uh, funeral in Milford. And um, mm -hmm. they, they were busing people in from all over um, to his funeral. And, um, and so, so with that, um, what's odd is that um, Robert Bletchman, our, our attorney who mentioned this for us, lost his life eight months later. What happened to him? Well, they said it was cancer or something. I don't know. Well, and then the doctor, so, so do you see a connection? Do you see a connection between oh, all this and your father's passing? Yeah, there's more. And then the doctor who investigated the treatment that my father had. See, now my father, when he went in, he was burning up with a high temperature. So Yale Haven gave him shots in the legs, you know, the, you know, um, different types, different antibiotics, you know, from augmentin yep. to Levaquin, whatever. And the more antibiotic they gave him, the more his temperature went up. So they thought, they assumed he had a bad infection, when in fact he didn't have an infection at all. He had a fungus in his blood, a deadly fungus in his blood. And wow. so when it gave him the antibiotics, it killed the good bacteria to fight the bad and it sped up his demise. And so Damn. he was gone on the same day. So because he lost his life on the same day and he had these political connections, um, you know, the, the historical society decided to kind of pay tribute to my father a little bit because he was advocating the incident so that everybody in town didn't, they didn't think they were crazy, you know? So he was right, doing sure. the town. And so the town, or at least some people in the town wanted to pay tribute to him. And that's how the whole monument came out. They rolled through okay. the monument, and then the monument became a park and people started donating things and it became a tourist attraction. Then a the town wanted to take it over. 
So yeah, okay, sure. That's kind of what happened. Uh, my, so, so, I'm sorry. So, um, so when you were contacted by these TV shows, uh, how many TV shows have you been on? How many programs? Well, some of them I I'm friends with, like I'm friends with Ben Hansen, and I'm I speak to you know Osborne Productions now and then, and so I've got some contact. So I would right. mention what happened to see if it would. You know, now and then I reach out to them and say that if you find this might be of interest, you know, you're working on something similar, let me know. And maybe a year later, they call me back. Um, other right. times, I'll get a random call. But yeah, I um, the, the, I think one of the first shows that they we did, um, well, first we were on the Fox Morning, Red, Red Sofa Morning Show. And then we okay. were on Good Morning, Good Morning Canada, Canada AM. Yeah. I got, got a lot of attention. And then we were on uh, Discovery Channel's Alien Mysteries. Did a very good job, actually. I, that was one of the better ones. Now, they then, pay you? Uh, do they pay you? No, I don't take payment. Why? No. Well. What? <laughs> no, I don't. No, I asked them to give a donation to the park. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. You. All right. Man. I, I love I, that. I don't, yeah. I don't. You know, I don't need it. I mean, what are they going to do? Fight over? How much were they going to give you? <laughs> how much? How much would they have given you? <laughs> we have a limousine, a Maserati, half million dollar home. I don't need. A Maserati? Are you got a Maserati? Yeah, we just sold it actually. We just sold it. We had a, yeah, a quadruport, white quadruport, beautiful. It has the mod, had wow. the uh, Ferrari uh, engine in it. Yeah, I got a brand yep. new uh, truck. Uh, I got a $4,000 cat. <laughs> yeah, I had a lot tiger. You had one, yeah, okay. Uh, huh. I got a hot tub, tanning beds. I don't need, you know, okay, you don't need money. All right, good for you. I just, I don't need it. I'm just saying, just donate it to the park, you know, put a light in, put a bench right. in, you know, sure. Because I'm not right. doing anything for money, I'm not writing a book. I don't write. Yeah. Well, don't write a book for money. I know that. So, so, so listen to me. Listen, so listen I, for a second. I don't mean to interrupt you, but I, I do this to pay tribute to my late father. You know, right? What I, mean? I can understand that. Not about sure. giving me three hundred dollars to talk to you. You know, three hundred I mean? bucks. That's that's what it is, folks. Three hundred bucks. So let me ask you this though: What do you what do you think it was? What in your mind? What did you think it was? You think it's little green men from Mars? What do you think? That's a really good question. Okay, so let me tell you what happened after that eruption of crickets and cadians. Okay. After that, my mother, my brother, my grandmother and I all remember being somewhere that looked very, you know, military by design. It was not what a lot of people describe as being super high tech. These were lefts and rights, you know, tall hallways. Um, where I was, I remember seeing something lower from the ceiling I, that looked very industrial. I remember what looked like an autopsy table with a single pole in the middle of so it. So you were abducted? Were I you abducted then? I could not say I was abducted because, a matter of fact, I, I say I wasn't abducted. I was removed from the vehicle and taken somewhere yep. locally because where I, I was was not the craft. Okay. It was a military type of something. It, my mother was put back in the wrong place the car ignition was turned off. That hmm. seems to me that screams, you know, human error to me. That's um, why I, I, let me jump in real quick because I'm yeah. familiar with this case, and you and I have talked in the past. Um, one of the things that uh, that we kind of delineated was you have never made any claims about the abduction, but you felt that this was obviously on someone's uh, radar, no pun intended, because of the way things were almost improperly staged. When you say the car was turned off, if I remember correctly, we talked about the key ignition being turned off. Your right. mom in the wrong seat. 
uh, you having these memories of talking to people that seem to project some kind of an authority, you know, at 10 years old, you're kind of aware of that. And we're, you know, we're very close in age to 60s. Obviously, you would know how to respond, you know, the way your parents, your parents talked to me the same way as mine. So it was, there's a lot of things that stacked up with this. And that area that you have talked about has long uh, legacy going into the Hudson River Valley uh, mm -hmm. sightings that were seen, the type of craft that were seen. And I've always noticed that the flight characteristics of what you described and what you saw has great similarity to what occurs about two decades later in the way the craft flew, how they behaved, right. and how it doesn't seem to be upsetting the people that it's being seen. That's it's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I'm not saying, don't get me wrong, I didn't say that what I saw wasn't off-world, because it most definitely was. But yeah. who took us from the vehicle? Now, you know, I get questioned a lot about this because I've spoke, you know, this has been researched by a lot of different people in the whole bit. And I got to be completely honest with myself, too, because, you know, I take polygraphs and everything else. I'm willing to do that. So part okay. of me says, part of me says, how do I know what took me out of the car? Because at the time I was out. I didn't see who yeah. took me out of the car. And yeah. being where I was and seeing what looked like an underground facility, you know, like a big airplane hangar type of thing. It was bigger than the craft I saw. Uh -huh. So bigger than the craft seemed military, seemed industrial by design. And I was grabbed harshly on my left arm. I hurt. I mean, I'll never forget that. So there was a human element to it. And if there's a human uh -huh. element to it, and we've got all these industrial military manufacturing facilities in the area and government, because the not even we went back a minute ago, we were talking about all the companies in the area did you know that the magnesium for the atom bomb was also mined from like three miles from our diner really huh? that went to oak ridge yeah interesting and there area a, yeah. there was a magnesium yeah. spill a spill there so there was government underground facilities they're cleaning that up because they didn't want it to get into the Housatonic river and that was investigated oh, no. i mean you think, i mean you think there's a connection between that something that you ingested and caused you to Hallucinate or something like that? <laughs> no, I didn't drink the water. Um, oh. I don't think anybody wow, here we go. That, water, that was like the most toxic water. That was polluted yeah, really. back from, uh, was it the uh, paper mills? Where, oh, where yeah, yeah. Water that. Yeah. Now, we, uh, they still, but a lot of people still fish out of it. Um, but, uh, Ooh. Ooh. Oh, oh, God. So All I can is, imagine so is the fish out of the Simpsons. Down, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm like, my God, then it's licking the baby's face. I'm like, oh, Jesus, you know? Oh, come on. Here we go. All right, listen. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to ask people around the, around the horn here if they have questions. Switchy, you must have a question. Switch. Uh, the, the ancient alien segment. Uh, remember what year that was or any idea what season that uh, oh, yeah, was? It was uh, season 11. Um, okay. It was taken. Okay. Um, matter of fact, if you go to my website, which is uh, ufopark.org, there's a lot, of, um, a lot of video on there. Um, from when, um, you know, the park opened and, and, and the people sponsored it from the uh, links to the Ancient Aliens episode, as well as Unsolved Mysteries and a bunch of others. Okay. Um, right. So Do you have any any markings on you or any, uh, like, like they people talk about scoop marks or, or you know, and, and so forth? Did, was there anything strange or, uh, about uh, what happened to you afterwards? Yeah, there, my, my brother, first of all, I'll start with that because that was more significant. He had two puncture wounds behind his right ear that... Wow. Like one centimeters, he had gone to a doctor. The doctor went public, although the doctor's gone too. Isn't that weird? Mm. Uh, puncture wounds behind here, and he had two puncture wounds along the thymus gland. 
and it was suggested that a needle had gone up and extracted the T cells. The T cells are what help the body fight, you know, uh, fight virus, disease, or whatever. You know, right, sure. when you're older, they dry up. But it was odd that the connection between the two punctured wounds behind the ear is the same, basically the trigger for the brain that tells the body how much T cells to produce. So the, mm -hmm. that that's. That was Dr. Um, oh my God. That's actually, you can find that on my website too. I got a link to that too. Okay. Um, okay. But uh, that was our family doctor who saw my brother. I've always had like this. I don't know if you can see it. Not your listeners certainly can't, but there's radio a radio show. Go ahead. And there was actually another one right there. So I've got two markings in the same spot on both of my Bumps. wrists. Interesting. Yeah. How about yeah, the pencil eraser? Mm -hmm. Hey, on Jim, Jim Hamilton. What do you think of this? Jim Hamilton outside of looking in it's it's always hard for me in these situations because i you know i i do long fall stories i hear about people say that they were saved by the lord you know the hand of god came out and grabbed them and right. i feel like well hold on there's got to be another explanation for that so i'm always looking around for a reasonable explanation this story is a really tough one because there are a lot of un, unanswered questions um Really, but I, I I still struggle with this because I feel like there's got to be a reasonable explanation somewhere. Somewhere, somewhere to all of this, there's going to be someone's going to say, "Well, it's this," and they won't go, "Oh yeah, but what is it?" You know what I mean? What what is that all-encompassing explanation? Well, there there was a connection to the um, the Goodwill message. Now, Sprague Electric didn't make the Goodwill message, and then all of a sudden we started seeing activity in the area. Sprague made the sent the message out because of the activity in the area, mm -hmm. and because uh, '66 and '67 there was an awful lot of sightings then too, and so they, you know, the message went with the flag and they put it on the moon, and all of a sudden all the you know people now were tying Sprague with the with the the sightings when in fact Sprague actually made it originally. Matter of fact, somebody that was interviewed on Yes Theory with me, her father was one of the people that worked on the at Sprague on the message, you know, mm -hmm. that department. Um, so Sprague actually made it because of the activity, not the other way around. Yeah. Wow, man, that's crazy. Hey, Club, what do you have? You must have a question or two, Clubby. Yeah, uh, Tom, one thing, you, it seems to me like you're alluding that this might be an experimental craft versus some alien kind of thing. Is that true? You no. feel it was? No, I think Because oh, you said it wasn't a craft that I didn't get from you that it, you thought it was some kind of uh, extraterrestrial kind of thing. Oh, no. I, I, there's, there's nothing that could have moved the way this did, uh, behaved the way it did. Uh, it was definitely off-world, but I think that there was um, government in the area that was right there, you know, with us. You know, there's a right. lot of people that talk about seeing government come out of the woods with the radios on their sides and, you know, finding a Jeep here and there. And, again, you know, we know that there's a lot of government manufacturing facilities in the area, which screams there's going to be, you know, that element anyway. And right. so I think that we were, you know, we were secluded. We were either at the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the wrong time, however you want to look at it. But we were, we were in the middle of these three pieces and something was taking place. And I think military was there. We had gone out, we were taken, extracted from the vehicle for whatever reason, whether it was alien or government, I don't know. I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't see that part of it. Um, mm -hmm. I do remember mm -hmm. an awful lot that has a, has a, uh, an element of, you know, extraterrestrial to it. So maybe there was something in conjunction, 
I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, how did this affect you growing up? Growing up, how did this affect you as a kid? I was difficult. You know, I got a lot of fights. I've always been small. I'm still only five six. You know, five five and a half now that my spine has shrunk too. But um, okay, <laughs> you know what I mean. Uh, and uh, in school, I was probably 130, 140 pounds. You know, so I became a punching bag. But I also learned to, you know, swing for the fences and do what I could, and got some thick skin. Uh, my brother mm -hmm. took the part of it actually, because he was my little brother. Uh, my mother was uh, verbally abused to no end. I mean, my mother's idea for that diner was to offer an, a judgment-free area for the locals to come and talk about it. Because you really couldn't talk about this outside the walls of the restaurant, because a lot of people work for that's who they were. They were the employers, you know, these manufacturers. Right, yeah, yeah. And so you can't go around talking about, hey, my dad's working on a UFO program. It's a speak secret space, part of the secret space race, right? So in our restaurant, though, you could talk whatever you wanted. But we didn't know when we first moved there that all this was going on in the Berkshires. You know, we were basically from New York. So we were outsiders. My mother was 29, two single boys driving a you know, gold you know, Mustang. And here we are in the country with their a lot of their relatives working for, you know, hanging on by a thread for their jobs at these manufacturing facilities. And now we're talking about UFOs, what can get them fired. So there was a lot of fights in our diner. Fights would break out, push and shove situations. And my mother doesn't understand why. So we're like, you can talk about whatever you want in here. So the diner was this judgment-free area for the children and the locals to discuss what they wanted. Mm -hmm. And the UFO park became an extension of that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a judgment-free park. It doesn't have to just be UFO, whatever you, it means to you, you know, sure. whatever struggles you've had, whatever problems you've had, that park is a judgment-free park and it's actually on private land. So if anybody wants to start anything with it, they can, you know, we can remove them permanently from, you know, through a, a court order. Right. So that's wow. What, and, wow. And so that's really what our case is about was paying tribute to my late father. What we are involved with to this day, I'm not a hundred percent sure. Right. But what a lot of people say that. I mean, that's the that's how a lot of people feel. They get into these situations and, and they don't have the answers at the end of the day. They just know something happened. It, yeah. We don't know what it is. Maybe someday we'll figure it out. But, uh, man, that's quite an experience, Tom. That is really uh, pretty far out. You know? Well, it became the first UFO case in, in America to be deemed historically true. Did you know that? Wow. Yeah. Wow. yeah. So that's pretty amazing start. right that's there. Crazy. No, it, it was inducted into the United States through the historical society, a lieutenant governor, the governor, and it was sealed by a judge in a 30th district court. This case is their first UFO incident to be deemed historically true in America. And Fox News just discussed it. This was the yep. original letter from the governor. I know your listeners can't see it. Showing us a form here from the governor, yep. Right. That's a formal citation. That's cool. Sealed by a judge in a 30th district Yeah, yeah, yeah. This oh, one, that's, that's really unusual. Yeah. It, there's more, this is just one of four. So this ended right. up getting some bad press by the same journalist who was knocking the park in the incident, Terry Cowgill in the area, about the monument, okay? Okay, yeah. But he never mentions that this one, the second one, was issued two month, two weeks later in November. Okay. The reason yep. being, the first one did not have a date of incident, and it was reissued oh. two months later in okay. history. Okay, in the couple minutes we have left, why, why would anyone knock this? Why was anyone knocking it? There's the letter from the Historical Society. Right. You know, we really don't know why Terry Calgill would do that. He mentioned that the, 
the monument was on town property, which it wasn't the town installed the monument. Mm -hmm. Nobody else had anything to do with that monument. You can't just go into a town and put a five thousand. So what's his problem? What's what's his problem then? Why is he why is he against this? You don't really know. You know, um, his family's known my family from way back when. It's probably an old, you know, grudge. Yeah, something like that. Well, people got people got time on their hands. So listen, how do how do people get in touch with you? Where can we see you on TV? Well, the best. uh, program to cover this incident is running right now. It's Travel Channel's Alien Cover-Up. And it talks okay. about pop circles that are appearing in the areas. It talks about our case, the governor. It talks all about it. Travel Channel's Paranormal Declassified Alien Cover-Up is by far the best. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I would also say Yes Theory did a fantastic job on YouTube. It got three and a half million hits in 60 days. Um, yes, the Unsolved Mysteries episode is probably one of the worst because it just doesn't have anything other than the flight path. Okay. I mean, I know some of the other people that saw it, but it doesn't talk about the facts. It doesn't talk about how it went to the UN. It doesn't talk about the death of my father. It doesn't talk about the right. government citations. It doesn't talk about anything. Wow. Tom, what was that YouTube Tom, one can again? Can I ask a quick question? Yes, please. Your certification, it took almost 50 years to get that. What did you do to... Uh, enable uh, you know that to be uh, accomplished I, to do get in. I got contacted by the historical society after we were on uh, after my father's passing and if you go to my website ufopark.org you can play the interview by abc news new york the correspondent was heather Colbert. she came in to cover it because of the passing of my father it was a political person and mm-hmm. so that the historical society thought well you know we might have something here you know tom had some connections back in the day would like to pay tribute to his father and into into uh, bring this in and get this uh, go have it go through a a census to be voted in as something historically true. Um, you know, it they had to do all this research and they got the archives from the radio stations. They got the old documents from this um, the the uh, United Nations symposium. The passing of my father. I took a polygraph test. I had to have a lawyer authenticate and. and um, you, you know, uh, validate these forms that were all submitted. It took two years for them to induct it. And then the Boston wow. Globe, the Boston Globe came in and covered it. And yep. I was on the cover of the Boston Globe twice in, in three years for making U.S. Yep. history. Yet yep. you, don't yeah, yeah. Other, you don't hear a lot of other people talking about our case when it has all this. Right now, we're proud to be part of this disclosure. I mean, right now, yep. we're, at, we're, we're at a time when this case means something. And I'm, I'm, right. you know, I'm proud, and I think my father would be proud to have finally played a part in whatever this, wherever this goes from here on out. But we played a part in disclosure, and we're proud of that. Right. Well, that's great, man. You're part of history. I mean, you're literally part of history. Yeah. Yeah, we right. are. And I think that's why mainstream, you know, gets behind us so much. You don't hear a lot of, you know, a lot. Basically, you have more mainstream support than anything else. Right. I mean, you're at a mass, right? What? Yes. You're in Massachusetts? Yeah. We live in eastern Massachusetts, yes. Yeah, there you go. There was a fantastic right. article in Upcoming Upcountry up Magazine that addressed yep. a lot of this. I don't know if you saw that, but that's a fantastic Very article. Very hoi polloi, yes. Uh-huh. So how do people get in touch with you? UFOpark.org. I mean, that's our and website. UFOpark.org. Yeah, cool. Yeah, UFOpark.org. Or Berkshire's UFO.com, either one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Well, it's a famous case, and we've been waiting to have you on, and I know this took a while, but I'm glad that you joined us. It's fascinating. I can't imagine going through this as a kid. Uh, would you do it over? If you had a choice, would you do it again? Yeah, that's a really good question, because to be quite honest with you, it changed our lives, all of our lives. Um, right. I wouldn't be talking to you, you know. Uh, yeah, I, I think I would do it again. Because mm-hmm. you know, anybody can have a modeling agency, right? Anybody can have, you know, own a diner, but not anybody That's, can uh, put part in, in history. And right. for that, I'm, I'm just, wow, my father's loss. I mean, that broke our family up. My father passing, we was we were really close. Um, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. You know, aside from that, um, yeah, I think I'd do it again. I mean, uh, I'd rather be part, you know, nothing nothing good comes easy, right? And this has been right. a battle for us. But, right. you know, we got some, and, you know, we're New Englanders. You know, we don't roll over. So Fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. Hey, listen, will you come on another show and tell us what it's like uh, managing the uh, Miami cheerleaders? What's that like? The Miami Dolphins cheerleaders. Poofa. Yeah. I mean, I've got, okay. matter of fact, a lot of the, all that stuff's on my site, too. You can see the letters. Cool. You can, pictures? Yeah. Got pictures? <laughs> not, not for the general public. No, I, um, oh, that's all. That's all. That's no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, it was, uh, you know, I met a lot of them. I, a matter of fact, I got quite a few of them on uh, the Miami Vice uh, with Jamie Foxx and, and Colin Farrell. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I worked yeah, cool, on man. I worked on a movie. I, worked, I, actually, I actually worked on. Is that a Survivor, video game? Survivor Castings. Yeah, that's what we need a UFO Park video game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, man, you, you lead yeah. an interesting life there, my friend. That is really. Yeah, a crazy story. I own a, yeah, for I own a, real. I own a, a limousine company now. Really? Yeah. Okay. Rolling zone limo. Yeah. You clean the seats every every time it goes off. You clean the seats afterwards. <laughs> We're pretty careful who we put in the back. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's what I've been told. But yeah. watch what happens in the back. Yeah. Hey, Tom. Listen. Thanks for joining us, Henry. Thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Let's Good give job. a round of applause, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. I'd love to talk with you further about that. I know we it's been a long time since we did a radio right. show together, but yeah, um, well, we'll do it always again. Always good to see you, Tom. And like I said, uh, living history and getting yeah. that perspective is pretty rare. Yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. You made history. That's great. Hey, so listen, uh, JJ. Let me throw it to you. What do we got time wise there, my brother? Uh, we got about a minute and a half left. Okay, good. So just the time to do the plugs. Yeah. Uh, let's just do the plugs really quick. Home for our troops. Homes for Our Troops is a military charity of the show. Uh, go on to uh, Google them. They build uh, houses for veterans who lost limbs in the Iraqi and the Afghan war. Uh, they make it easier for them to get around. And then when they're finished, they give them the keys. No mortgage, nothing. They deserve it. Homesforourtroops.com. Go and check them out, please. Uh, give uh, what you can a donation. 88 cents of every dollar goes to our troops. It's one of the highest paying military charities there are. Also, our friend, Ross Shop and his mad Englishman friends putting together a, uh, putting back together a uh, walk plane from uh, World War II, the Mosquito, made of wood, two Rolls-Royce engines on it, fastest thing in the air for a long, long time. They're rebuilding it, and Juan Juan has volunteered to take the first civilian ride in it without a parachute, Jim Hamilton. Without yeah, a God. parachute. Oh. Any advice on me? There you go. That's what we all said. Anyway. anyway yeah, I'm sure. Hey, well, Jim ought to go with him. <laughs> it's really hard you to wear a parachute in the Bombay. Yeah, well, you know. Do I have time to say one more thing? Okay, so a lot of people wonder what happened with the monument. The monument was actually, a, a, you know, removed, but it was yes. replaced. It was replaced by a new park sign donated by TV chat to by TV's Ancient Aliens. 
Now, if you know that, uh, but ancient, ancient aliens gave us a donation because the nonsense with the monument. Yeah. And it was at the mon the, the the new centerpiece, the sculpture, was actually made by a movie director and Hollywood's brother. Now, many of you might have seen Bats with Lou Diamond Phillips or uh sure, among yeah. us, Louis Morneau. Louis Morneau flew me out. I was I met Louis Morneau in LA. His brother ended up, who's an artist, sculptor, made the entrance sign for the park by the money donated by TV channels H and Aliens. Nice. Oh, cool. That's nice. That's nice. And just give everyone real quick the location of the park in case they want to go see it. Where is it? It's um, right in downtown Sheffield, Massachusetts. Sheffield, Massachusetts. Right. Yep. It's near the old covered bridge, which was now, um, after it burned down in 94, they've re redone it. So now yep. you can walk across the bridge. Um, it's cool. right on the Sonic River. Again, Sheffield, Massachusetts, near the Oak Covered Bridge. The website is UFO Park. You'll find it. And I, and I really nice. appreciate you guys having me on. It was a lot of fun. And, thanks, uh, Sean. Thanks. Anytime, my friends. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we'll have you back on. Jim Hamilton, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Jim. My pleasure. Okay. All right. We'll talk to you soon, too. Okay. All right. Let's have a round of applause. Thank you, Jim. Sweet uh, Raven, thank you for joining us, Raven. Thanks Thank you so much for having me. Yes, this is fun. Did you enjoy it? Did you learn something? I did. I learned a lot. Yeah. And I got to geek Good. out over my pop-up mummy book. So There you go. The mummy was mentioned. Good night. Yes. Okay. Good night. Club, Club, thank you for joining us, taking time out from your pool. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. This is an excellent show tonight. I learned so yeah, much. Yeah, this is really cool. Yeah. This is really cool. Thank you. Switchy, of course. Thank you, Switcheroo. My pleasure. Get something good next week, okay, please? Okay, we'll do. The, the frosted flakes <laughs> get a little soggy, if you know what I mean. Let's get, let's get back to the frozen waffles. Please, at least, okay? Ooh, if not waffle. the Grand Slam at Denny. Oh, wow, uh, so Coco, thank you, Coco. As Coco, always. thank you. Okay, we'll talk to you soon. Juan Juan, thank you. You betcha. My best to Lois Lane. For driving tonight. Thank you. And thanks for everyone out there listening to us. We're a podcast now. Uh, we're on Apple Podcasts. We're on about 28 different everywhere. platforms. Just Google us and uh, you'll find us. Thank you to everyone out there in the internet radio networks too. And this is Mac from the entire gang. Until the next time you hear us, be safe, be happy, and bye-bye. <laughs>